let's um, let's jump into the text. Uh, as Doug mentioned, this is a, a really challenging text. It's a famous text, but it's also one that has um, that every time you encounter it, you're like, oh my gosh, I don't. What am I going to do with this? And what we're going to do today is we're going to we're going to try to understand the logic underneath what Jesus is, is teaching here. What is he trying to accomplish in and through us, in and through this teaching? Because it might not be obvious. And so let's take a look um, at enemy love in Matthew 5 from the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The first thing I want to point out, that's not actually a quote from the Old Testament. This is the first time that Jesus has, has said, you have heard it said, but it's not a quote from the Old Testament. The first part is, love your neighbor. That's in Leviticus 19. But there's nothing in the Old Testament about hating your enemy. Okay, It's sometimes implied because there will be places where God's like, these people are evil and we need to like wipe them out, stuff like that. But there's never a place where it says, hey, your enemy. Instead, that was tradition that had been uh, developed by the rabbis um, and in, in the surrounding culture. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. Jesus says, no, that's not what I say. I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He, the father, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the ground, uh, on, on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, <laughs> what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? No one likes the IRS. But the IRS, you know, they do love their own people. <laughs> All right? Uh, and, and if you greet only your own people, well, what are you doing more than others? Do not, do we don't have anyone who works for the IRS, right? Because, because if so, I want you to know I love you. And, uh, and you're doing great work. And, and if you greet only, if you, if you greet only your own people, my mom's a CPA, so if the IRS didn't exist, I mean, she'd be out of work, so thank you. Alright, uh, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Well, there's a lot going on here, so let's let's start to, to pick it apart. The first thing, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Uh, love is agapao in the Greek, hate is meseo. Those are uh, those are those are action words. Okay, we uh, in the in nowadays when we say I love you know that baseball player or whatever, what we mean is I have positive feelings for that person. The Old Testament, the New Testament, the Bible doesn't typically speak in terms of feelings. The Bible typically speaks in terms of actions. You might have these feelings for somebody, but you demonstrate those feelings by how you act. You do good to them, right? And likewise, if you, you might have like feelings of revulsion or distaste towards someone, but in the Bible, it's not that you just have it. You, you hurt that person. You, you do things to harm them. That's what hate is. The real question is, what is neighbor and what is enemy? Neighbor for us, I mean, it's hard because as the United States becomes less and less of a community-oriented country, it used to be that you kind of knew everyone on your block. When I was growing up, I knew all the kids on my block, and it was clear who my neighbors were, right? It was all the people who lived on the same housing track. Now it's difficult to know. There's a, uh, there's a, a, a Polish British, uh, sociologist who's famous in the 1970s. He, uh, came up with some, some really, uh, really good research on neighbors and enemies. And the reason for this, I have a picture of him here. It's, uh, Henry Jaffel. He w- uh, was born a Polish Jew, uh, in the 1930s. He emigrated to France. 
Um, in, uh, when the World War II broke out, he, he uh, volunteered for the French army. He was captured almost immediately, spent the rest of the war in, um, in uh, cons- uh, pr- prisoner of war camps. He never told uh, the people there that he was Jewish because he was afraid that if he did, that he would be sent to uh, be butchered. When the war ended, it turned out that um, uh, he had only two friends. All of his family uh, in Poland was wiped out. Only two of his friends survived the Holocaust. And so he, I mean, he was shocked by this news. He had, because as a prisoner of war, he had no idea what was happening. Once it became clear, he began, he began to be really convicted or, con, or confused. What is it that causes division amongst people? What is it that causes hate amongst people? And so what he did is he, he moved uh, to England. He pursued some doctoral studies. And uh, he has a very famous uh, theory called the us and them theory of social uh, management. The us and them theory. And what he began to, to see is that, is that human beings naturally, our natural instinct is to categorize ourselves in groups of us's and them's. He had a, a really famous experiment. It's been done many, many times where he would get just a bunch of random strangers and he would get them in a room and, uh, and then he would show them uh, two different paintings. And uh, so the people who liked the first painting, he said, okay, you're, you're in group A. If you think painting one is better, you're group A. Um, and for those of you who think that, that painting two is better, you're group B. And so he separated them just on the most trivial difference. Like, who cares? Like, there's nothing. These people have nothing in common that they know about. The only thing they know is that they chose to like this painting over that painting. And then what uh, Tiafel did is he, he would give each person $50. And he said, you can give this money to anyone that you want. And, and at, the end of the, at the end of the experiment, they'll get to keep it. What you're hoping, though, is that what you're trying to do is get the most for yourself. You're hoping that the other people in the room are going to give you more money than anybody else. Time and time again, the people in group A give money almost exclusively to other people in group A. The people in group B almost exclusively give money to people in group B. With nothing in common except I like this painting more than that one. Human beings naturally separate ourselves into groups where we think of us, my, my team, my crew, my people, and them. The other, the one who's out to get me, the one I'm suspicious of. When the Bible uses the language of neighbor and enemy, it's really just talking about the people that you think of as my people. And the people that you think of as them. And what you'll find is that you naturally prefer and and you naturally help. You naturally um, encourage your people. And you're naturally suspicious of everybody else. It's the first thing on your note sheets. Jesus knows. Jesus knows that human beings tend to do good to us. And do harm to them. And that makes sense. That seems like a pretty good logical way to go about life. But it brings up some questions, right? Who, who's us? Right? Who, who, are, who are our us's? Who are our them's? 
talk a little bit more about this in a second, but um, as, as we kind of think about our lives and think about our sphere of influence and think about the people that, who, who, where do we, where do we identify? Those are my people and those are not my people. And more importantly, how, what this is the second question? What influences us? How do we, how is it that our mind, because remember what, what Tiafal showed is that it's not rational at all. Like it's crazy how we, I like this painting more. These are my people. Like that's nuts. And yet, it's how it's human beings. So what are the influences? What's causing us to think these are my people and these are not? It's probably something very instinctual. It's probably something very emotional. Now, this is the, the, the greatest part of this teaching. Okay, so Jesus is trying to convince people. He's like, okay, I want you to love your enemies. I want you to do good and to pray for those who, who persecute you. How is he going to convince us to do this? Well, what he, he appeals first to God. He causes his son, God. God, he's speaking to Israelites, Jewish people. It's like, he's on our team. He's an us. God is an us. But who does the sun rise on? <laughs> Them and us, the evil and the good, right? God, again, our team, sends his reign on who? Us and them, the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love who? Us. Well, how great is that? Even the thems do that. And if you greet, uh, greeting in the ancient world, uh, especially for Jewish people, was a very uh, important sign of, of respect and um, uh, signaling that we are, we're at peace. And they literally say shalom, meaning peace. Uh, so it's a very important thing. Uh, well, if you only say shalom to us, your people, even they do that. Even the thems do that. Why, why is Jesus, so the first thing is he's like, like, okay, we've divided the world into us's and them's. And then Jesus plays on that to convince us that we should do something. Love our enemies. Why? Well, just as um, it's very natural for us to divide ourselves into us's and them's, the way that we divide ourselves, the, the, our us's, they influence how we act, what we think is good and bad, and even how we see ourselves, even how we identify ourselves. So, for example, I just have a couple examples here of common us's and them's, right? Uh, as, you know, <laughs> growing up, uh, I was at the nerd table. I've told you before, Aaron was at the jock table. And uh, when if we had met in high school, we would have hated each other. Because I'd be like, you don't even know how to read books. And she'd be like, grades? Only losers care about grades. <laughs> but think about that. Think about that. Like, like why, why, would, why, why, why would we think that? Well, because as a nerd, I'm looking over at the jocks being like, they don't include me. They're just a bunch of... And I don't, and so I don't do stuff like that. I don't live the way they live. I live this way. This way is the right way. Republicans and Democrats. If you're a Republican in this increasingly partisan, you know, world, you look at the Democrats, you're like, they're terrible. They hate America. And if you're a Democrat, you look at the Republicans, they're heartless. They don't have any time to support and care for uh, the, the migrants coming across the border. 
And so to know who I am and what's right and wrong is to know how I identify with my people and their people. It gets dumb too. I mean, you know, Nick and I, we have a problem because for years we hated LeBron James. Like it was just, you had to, the guy was, and then he comes to the Lakers and it's like, your heart breaks. You're like, what do you do here? The them is now an us. What do we do? Support the warriors. It's the only way out. Um, but, 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 but think even in sports, like, like, you know, your favorite team, like the, the, the fans of the other team, they're terrible. They're rowdy. They're riotous. The, the, hitting closer to him, the Catholics and the Protestants now were, were much less at odds, but for a long time, Catholics and Protestants hated each other. And, uh, part of the reason for that is, is that there was a, kind of a view about how Catholics view Jesus versus Protestants. Catholics, if you notice, um, a lot of their iconography is, is Jesus being suffering. He's in agony, right? And with Protestants, a lot of our stuff is like, Jesus is winning. He's raised from the dead. You know, he's victorious. And so it's very common for Protestants to look at Catholics and be like, oh, you glorify suffering. That's ridiculous. We're not, it's not about Good Friday. It's about Easter Sunday. And the Catholics will look at the Protestants and be like, oh, you guys, you just do whatever you want. You have no sense of like suffering, taking up your cross. What's dangerous about that? Well, it's dangerous because as a Protestant, if you start to identify this is who I am, then maybe it's, you're not interested in taking up your cross. Maybe it's, it's, it's wrong or, or, or just a, it's anathema to be willing to suffer for the faith. And if you're Catholic, maybe it, it's wrong to expect and hope and wait for Jesus to come in power and victory in our lives. The next thing in our note sheets, um, Jesus knows that the us-them instinct is so powerful, it can change what we think about good and evil and even who we are, our own identity. Are you a Republican first or a Jesus follower first? Let's think about it. Let's, let's ask a couple of these questions. What makes our people better than their people? Isn't that weird? Isn't it weird that we, um, we, oh, they, they're, they're, they're down there. We're up here. Really? Why? And maybe there are some significant differences, but is it just that animal instinct to be like them? No good. Us. Awesome. And more importantly, the second question do we find our identity in our team or Jesus? For a lot of us, we, we think it's the same thing. For me, I mean, if I'm being honest, our people, for me, probably the number one our people is y'all. Like, you're my people. To a, to a serious extent, like, you're my people more than some of my own blood relatives are. You're my people. But do I become so caught up in being a member of this church, part of this community, that I forget that who I really am is a child of God? And Jesus sees this. So let's go back to the text one more time and notice this. Notice this. I love you. Uh, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If it's the case 
that Jesus has figured out the, the us-them thing long before Henri Chaffel did in 1970, if that's the case, why is he telling us now, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? What's the point? I have a quote here from uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. It's not hard to keep an enemy as an enemy, and it's usually not that hard to keep a friend as a friend. But when someone hates you, how are you going to change that? And the bottom right there is the, the, the gravestone of Peter Miller. He was a pastor in the 1700s. He died in 1796 at 86 years old. He was born in Germany. He uh, emigrated in 1730. And he settled in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, which is a small village. He uh, emigrated to be a pastor. He was called to be a pastor in the German Reformed Church. While he was there, he became convinced that the Baptists had better theology. Which, and he was right about that. Um, and so, that was a joke. I, I love the Reformed people. If you don't know what that is, good. Let's keep it that way. Uh, he, so he decided to leave his church and, and go and pastor at a Baptist church. Um, one of his deacons uh, was a guy named Michael Whitman in the, in the Reformed Church. And Michael Whitman hated the Baptists, and he felt personally betrayed that his pastor would go and work with those dirty, dirty Baptists. And the story goes that he, uh, when he would see, um, when he would see uh, Miller on the street, Whitman would either strike him in the face or spit in his face. And for years this went on. During the American Revolution, the, the two were also separated. Uh, Peter Miller actually became an acquaintance of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. When the Declaration of Independence was written, uh, Jefferson asked uh, Miller to translate it into different languages. He translated it into seven different languages. Uh, so he was familiar with and an acquaintance of the Founding Fathers. On the other hand, uh, Whitman hated the, the revolutionaries. He was a Tory. He loved King George. So once the war started, uh, Whitman was in a pub that he owned, and during uh, the evening, he maybe had a few too many, and he started railing against the revolutionaries. He started, you know, long live King George, Tory, Tory, Tory. And it turns out that two of the people who were in the pub that night were American spies. And they became incensed at his behavior, and so they, on the spot, they arrested him for treason. They took him to uh, Valley Forge. You may remember during uh, the, the American Revolution, there was a very terrible winter in Valley Forge. That's where George Washington was located. They took uh, Whitman to Valley Forge to put him before George Washington for judgment. He was found guilty of treason and sentenced to hang. When Miller heard this, he left and walked from Ephrata to Valley Forge, which is about 66 miles in the cold, in the snow, with a cane because he had a bad leg. When he arrived, he found General Washington, who knew him and was granted an audience. And so he said, General Washington, please pardon this man, Michael Whitman. And Washington looked at him and said, Peter, Peter, just because you're, he's your friend doesn't mean that I can let him off. And Miller looks at Washington and says, friend, I have no worse enemy in the world than this man. And Washington stopped and thought, 
and said, you're telling me that you're willing to walk 66 miles through the snow on your bad leg to plea for the life of a man who hates you? And Miller said, yes. Washington said, well, maybe your love will win and gives him a right of pardon. Miller takes it to Whitman and Whitman looks at him and says, ah, I see you're here to get your revenge as I'm hanged. And Miller says, no, I'm here to set you free. So when his manacles came off, Whitman ran over and crying embraced the man who had been his greatest enemy. They walked home as friends and remained friends, fast friends, until Miller's death at 86 in 1796. There, there was no greater them for Peter Miller than Michael Whitman. Nobody. Even the British weren't worse thems because they were far away. But in one action of love, not feelings, but in one action of love, that was changed forever. And so Jesus knows this thing. It's the next thing in our note sheets. Jesus understands that love and action can turn a them into an us. The sad news is it doesn't always work. In fact, I don't know what the track record is of love and action turning them into us. I don't. But I do know that it, like Martin Luther King Jr. said, it's the only way. Who's the them that should be in us for you right now? For every one of us, there are people in our lives, communities, you know, institutions, whatever, who are thems. They're your enemy. They show it. They want to do you harm. They do. For some of you, uh, maybe you're, you're not ready to start um, forgiving and all the things. But at the very least, let the Holy Spirit settle in your heart a person, a people, a community, an institution that is a them and needs to become an us. You don't have to make that decision today. Today, it may, maybe not. Maybe, maybe all it is is just identifying your enemy and knowing that deep down in your heart, God's calling you eventually to start making some moves. Maybe you're not ready to start doing good to that person. Okay, maybe you're not there yet. You know who they are. You want to start taking a steps, but you're not ready to, to actually like do good to your enemy. Well, at the very least, begin today to do the process of forgiveness in your heart. Let, let's, let the Holy Spirit in to change your heart towards this person, this community, this institution. I'm not saying you got to go out and buy them flowers today, but at the very least, let your heart start to turn. And for those of you whose hearts have started to turn, now is the moment to take the final step, the one that's the most dangerous, the one that requires the most faith, the one that's the hardest, and to actually do good to a person who has demonstrated their desire to do harm to you. 
and I'm not sure what that doing good is going to look like, but love, love that Jesus is talking about is not like, I, I forgive you and I feel I have good feelings towards you. No, no, it's, I love you and I'm going to go to General Washington 66 miles away and get your pardon for you. And think, this next question, think, think, have you ever been turned from a them into an us? Has someone's love towards you ever done that? The answer is yes. And Jesus knows it. Go back to the text. Look at what he says. Look at what he says. He wants us to become children of our father in heaven. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, Jesus understands that the Father's desire is not just to help his people, uh, the, the Jewish people, Israel. That's not God's desire. God's desire is that his love will transform the entire world from them's enemies of God into us's children of God. And guess how that happened? We know. What is the gospel? The gospel is that we were all enemies of God. In our sin, in our rebellion, we were as far away from him as we could be. And, and God did not, you know, just let that distance remain. Instead, God said, I'm going to cross over that distance. Love in action. I'm going to, in a heart of forgiveness and desire, I'm going to go in the person of Jesus Christ. I'm in my self-sacrificial giving love. I am going to transform you into us, into my child. I don't care what it costs me. If it costs me everything, so be it. But I'm going to turn you from my enemy into my child. That's the last thing on your note, Jesus. In Jesus Christ, God's self-giving sacrificial love turns us from enemies into his kids. And if God's willing to do that for us, what might we be willing to do to our enemies? Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we are so privileged to be called your kids. That when we were far off, you crossed the distance in love to change us from your enemies into your kids. Holy Spirit, prick our hearts. Prick our hearts right now um, to know who the enemy is. Maybe enemies. Maybe it's someone in this room. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone at work. Prick our hearts to recognize the one who keeps trying to do us harm. For some of us, God, just open up the heart of forgiveness to, as the song we're going to sing talks about, loving the unlovable, to begin that process, to begin the process of opening our heart to the one who wronged us. And for some of us, God, who, who have done that and, and participate in forgiveness, Holy Spirit, give us wisdom to know how we can begin that excruciating process, a, a process that requires so much faith and trust, to begin doing good, loving in action to that person or those people. 
We love you. We praise you. We worship you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.